John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 088.ez2736, certificate number 26524. The Bottom-Meinhof Gang. So we're living in a time uh, that feels in some ways like an unprecedented sort of rebellion, uh, a, a rising up of of a kind of, well, you wouldn't describe it as a united left, but certainly in the last- but an actual activa- activated left is new in my lifetime. That's right. Uh, uh, up until uh, the last six years, probably, the left had become a kind of muted and co-opted, like conservative middle that- that uh, from the Clinton years on, and and arguably all through the Reagan years, uh, in a, in an attempt to kind of be bipartisan, um, adopted a, a, a pretty uh, conservative economic program, uh, embraced globalization, and embraced kind of corporate deregulation and deregulation of the stock market. And sought to um, kind of expand the appeal of the party by seeking a, an ideological and social centrism as well. Right. right. While Whilst the right uh, in American <laughs> politics... <laughs> what's, what's the other thing? ...had no interest in compromise at all and continued to just push more and more rightward, resulting in, a, in an American political spectrum that didn't really have a mainstream left to speak of... And certainly not an active and engaged radical left, or or rather what I guess you would call far left, um, that that offered any kind of mainstream critique of capitalism in general and mainstream sort of um, counter to the idea that corporate capitalism in particular was going to be the kind of – was generally accepted as the solution to – uh, social in- inequality. It was the solution to, I mean, th- and based on the idea that growth could be infinite, right? That that you could that money would grow infinitely, that resources would never be exploited, and if they were, it would technology would magically wave its hands and solve problems. But you've got yeah, inequality one result there. The environmental cost that's right. something you know that the left 
should have been grappling with and was but the left was very siloed it was it was hard you know environmentalists were one thing and social justice activists were another but there wasn't and in and i think you could make a case still isn't a common cause a common platform uh because the you know the left right now at least is in a state where ideological purity kind of becomes a um it becomes an impediment to developing like a consistent far left platform and you and you'd want a national party to do that and in a parliamentary system there would be room for that right but you know a, according to one popular formulation you know the united states is now left with essentially two corporatist right parties of fairly similar ideology one pro choice and one pro life and, and that's what you vote between. And the, the the Democratic Party has always been a party of uh, a party that that tried to include social justice in their platform, where the where the right didn't. Um, but it was social justice within a kind of within a context of not a police state exactly, but one a, a law and order state within the system. Yeah, there was not a sense that uh, within the Democratic platform that that the police or that the or law enforcement in general was something that democrats would ever like tilt against um and you know far left platforms typically see the police as instruments of the of a of a capitalist order there to impose you know property rights or not impose but there to to protect property rights protect um, you know, corporate interests against what would what would be considered basic human rights. There's a funny dynamic going on right now in summer 2020, where you and I are temporarily, where you've got, uh, you know, in the run-up to the election, you've got the Republican candidates and their surrogates trying to make this case that Joe Biden, of all people, wants to defund the police. Yeah, I know. And, uh, and you've got people on the left just thinking, man, I wish. You know, imagine, imagine hearing <laughs> the, Republican, the Republican platform and being like, yeah, boy, you know, that would be great. Like, yeah. Uh, I, 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 is that true? I'll vote for that. It's unfortunately not unfortunately, true. Unfortunately, he's a 108-year-old Irish-American man who right. does not want to defund the police. Well, and who's been a Democratic Party operative since the 70s and, and, and embraces a, you know, a great society kind of idea about the way the American left is going to produce a more equitable society. But you right? see the limitations of starting the conversation at, you, you see this in multiple arenas of it. Problem of starting the conversation from the center right. and letting your position be pushed rightward. Something that hasn't troubled the Republicans recently. You know, um, like you, you you kind of yearn for some kind of presence in government that says, uh, "No, we want to overhaul the tax system because we want to pay for this Green New Deal," and negotiates from there, not for. Here's Nancy Pelosi's watered down version of this, where right. you get a few tax credits for your d- healthcare deductible. But she's starting from a position that even in uh, even in the in the Johnson administration would have been considered a center right, <laughs> right. <laughs> place or, or to in begin. any other nation on earth, which must right. be confusing to people watching American politics from afar, thinking this is your ne- wait. Neither party, including your your vilified left wing one, believes in. The public option for health insurance? Right. Come on. Well, and what's um, what I think is interesting about our current moment, right, is that there, the the left is beginning to galvanize, and it's galvanizing around um, racial injustice, uh, 
in the in the present, you know, September of 2020. And a lot of that is is bolstered by a, a longstanding project to kind of reevaluate the American experiment in context of its um, the uh, the fact that uh, that the American experiment was inextricable from institutionalized slavery from the you know the mid seventeenth century to abolishing slavery and then another hundred years of sort of institutionalized racism. So that that process of real reevaluation contextualized by police violence, which is now available for all to see. This is largely technology-driven. Right. Problems that have always existed are now uh, harder to sweep under the rug. And and just as you were saying about the international community going, what, the left isn't even aware of the of what is considered mainstream leftism? The black community in the United States is like, this is news to you? And that, uh, and, you know, that conversation now has become... And it was kind of news to me. Like, I feel like over the last 10 years, I've become aware of things that, you know, have been deeply ingrained in in the American culture of black folks for my entire life. I didn't know that you had to take your son aside and tell them exactly how to act in a traffic traffic stop so you didn't get killed. And that this was kind of a rite of passage for, unfortunately, for black kids. This was something I never thought about because I never had to think about it. And now I feel like these things are in the popular discourse in a way that they, you know, were not even for well-meaning folks on the left 10 years ago. It's true. And 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 when you think about it, of course it's been true the whole time, right? right. When yeah. when the scales fall from your eyes. This is not a new, newly urgent problem for anyone, but, but you know, people who have recently been... Yeah, and introduced it, to it, and it's true. Uh, it's true of. Any, it's always been urgent. It's always been urgent, and it's always been. Um, you know, I think that we have seen a, a tremendous uh, change in the way that l- the law regards, and by the law, I mean the laws uh, regard institutionalized discrimination. But what changing the laws cannot do is uproot long-standing racism in racism in communities racism in uh in the the institutional memory of all these places that maybe have new laws that govern them but have mores and traditions that are you know that are somewhat impenetrable to law and the new laws may actually galvanize and embolden kind of resistance to them. Right. Like now it's not just soft media pressure to be a a better person. Yeah, to be a nice tolerant person. What now there's teeth to that make your small business be tolerant in certain legal ways and make election officers act in certain legal ways and and what that means and, is that the, you have all these these uh these case examples where where if you were if if you felt like the moray or the tradition was the was closer to the truth, the laws would feel imposed upon right. you by a radical. It gives, you, it gives you the option of feeling like a victim, right. even though you know in general those people tend to be the ones ex- exercising unexamined privilege, not a real underclass in any way. Right. Well, but that's the thing about American politics. If you look at absolutely any political interest group across the entire spectrum, what you will find is that now in the current conversation, every one of them posits themselves as a victim class, including 
white Christians, including corporate, including the biggest companies <laughs> yeah, in America, right? Like the boards of directors. <laughs> right. If you listen to their language and you look at their platform, you see that they are using the language of victimization and in a way using using the language of a Marxist dialectic. You this know, is like when my <laughs> this is like when my teenager, you know, has internalized the modern language of therapy speak enough to tell me that um, you know it's it's a it's a toxic energy when I tell her to clean her room, you right. know? And the wonderful thing about the Marxist um, sort of a, like bicameral understanding of, of power, you know, not just global power, but any – as as Marxism became less a critique of power, 19th century power in the hands of manufacturers mm -hmm. and became more of a general social critique that was uh, that was more of a blueprint that you could sort of apply to any exchange because any exchange between even two people is ha, is infused with a power dynamic or a potassium dynamic or or a a, a brown banana in um, any situation somebody has more potassium in their system right now than the other person the power of the banana uh you can look at it as a as an an owner worker dichotomy mm -hmm. right or, or or conflict and so you can see yourself as uh, you can put yourself in the role of the exploited worker, even if you are not in the least bit exploited, or um, because because the dynamic is so fluid. We we definitely uh, this is something I saw this week. People going on TV in front of an audience of tens of millions of people to, to share their shattered story of how they were canceled. Yeah, yeah, I know it's you're, really terrible. You're, you're speaking to 15 million people, sir. You, <laughs> you, you were not in fact canceled. <laughs> Here you are, still with the platform. Um, but what's interesting about I think the contemporary left is they have a um, there is a tenor or a temperature to the conversation that that suggests that there's not a, a real institutional memory of leftism. Not right. just in the United States, but in the Western world. It seems like because of that long interregnum, and that's a word we love on the show. We love it so much we add a syllable to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the but the the period between the late seventies or the or the early eighties and uh, recent years, a full invisible generation, us came of age. That's right. And during that period, leftism had become some, you know, far leftism had become somewhat muted and disorganized. And it was par uh, partly because uh, the right made a, a concentrate, the right and even the Democratic Party made a kind of concentrated effort to mute uh, that generation. And the end of the Cold War took a lot of the energy out of what was seen as a global kind of left-right conflict and, you know, left us in this world where um, there was not a, uh, a Marxist other to, to either emulate yeah. or use as an example of, the, of the, um, the enemy. I wonder if that's why my parents' generation, you know, you see them thinking and voting in different ways than ours does, in ways that occur, you know, appear to me troublesome is because that's the last generation that has some memory of a of an energized left that was scary and violent right because they're our generation has never come up with you know in our generation all those threats in reality or in in uh thriller movies come from the right uh right the the right who are the fascistic ones are the are the one the, the violent ones. the fertilizer bombs we, we don't really have a memory of that kind of at least in this country that kind of violence coming from the left. 
And there was, you know, there was a, the rise of the environmental movement and especially in the 1980s mm, and early true. 90s, there were, um, there were some terroristic acts where largely it was pouring sand in the uh, right. gas tanks of bulldozers. If the, if the victim is a bulldozer. Yeah, but every once in a while, you know, I think here at the University of Washington, there was the famous um, incident where they burned down the greenhouse at the, at the horticultural center um, because there was, because they suspected that there were GMO products there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what they really did was just kill a bunch of orchids. Um, but it was, you know, it was seen as a, as a leftist attack. There were animal rights events too. But if you remember the sixties, these were the headlines every day. What's what the scary campus kids are going to do next. And that just doesn't exist anymore. So in so much that we have to invent it, that we have to imagine that Bernie bros are a threat because they were mean to Maureen Dowd yesterday or something. Yeah. But, But within the left, I think there is not a sense that, there is precedent for uh, for this experience, or mm. there is precedent for the movement. So the movement, you think, should have a longer memory? Uh, it, just in that there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of source material that can be used, I think, to clarify a, a, a wider position, but also some cautionary tales in terms of what to. Uh, <laughs> what not to do next time? What not to do next time, and what you know, and and, and what to do to, um, I think, build on structures that you're making, and not have not have a platform that's reactionary, right? That is only against the right, rather than being constructive and 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 have a platform to build a world. Uh, and that is a that's a problem with any kind of reactionary group. Common critique of yeah, yeah that you don't um, that you don't actually have a, a, a an idea a better idea in you're just in angry. The chamber. You're just angry, and those are the images that you get you, that you see on TV. You you don't see the angry people, you know, hitting ten bureaucratic brick walls before some element of them finally starts breaking windows. Right, and the and the the anger just uh, the the simmering anger yes. in the black middle class where it's like, look, you have no idea. It's not just that we get shot uh, at traffic stops. Like someone literally had to make these things a plot device on blackish for me to understand <laughs> them because they they do not make the news. Right. But uh, but institutionally just every time you go to an office and try and appeal to somebody, yes. you know, every time you go to a bank and look for a loan, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's a systemic thing. Um, but it's not just anger. It is even within political structures. If all of your platforms are just platforms to undo the um, to undo a precedent, right? You're not. It's not actually it, it limits the actual good your movement will do. Yeah, right? it's not constructive. You're it, going to hit a stopping point at some right. point. But the 1960s and 70s were a period where uh, where in in the Western world and really globally, uh, leftism um, was uh, there was an, a very active, very frustrated and global hard left that was organized across um, across the globe, lo- loosely organized in a lot of ways, uh, and convinced at the time that power structures as they existed were um were not surmountable by reason or by by political means. What are the what are the inputs that are making them feel this way? Like what do they feel are the the crises? Are are, are have they just learned an academic language to be angry young people or are specific things happening in the world that they feel 
energized about. In the immediate post-war, uh, po- post-World War II political world, you had a, a lot of things happening. And one of them was that colonialism was dissolving, was collapsing all around the world. All of the kind of former colonial possessions in Africa, in uh, in the Asian subcontinent. But that in, should be good news for them. Well, but what was happening was um, that Western powers, and and by that I include the Soviet Union, were, although uh, although colonialism t- t- was technically over. And the viceroy went home. Right. The new he, governments. The CEOs moved in. CEOs moved in and also the CIA and the KGB moved in. And these uh, these newly formed nations, which had an you know initial opportunity to become either democratic states or uh, workers paradises, workers paradises, let's say, or to just reinstitute a kind of local tribalistic government to become um, to become not just states but nations. They those uh, those uh, those opportunities were immediately kind of seized upon by the by the quiet uh the the the, the, right. uh, the 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 tendrils of uh of the cold war the initial years of the cold war and these nations and the economic power not just the strategic power against the uh the other block but also the american fruit company the economic losses you'd get if you you know just because this country is not the same color on the map as me anymore doesn't mean i don't need my my bananas and my petroleum and, and all the rest. That's right, and even even and not just the the pre-existing ones, but the new opportunity to go into places with unstable governments and exploit mineral resources. You know, this is also when oil was discovered in the Middle East, uh, and and when the world became truly an oil economy. So that was happening, but also part of um, part of why World War Two ended. And we had a, a kind of a Pax Americana for the rest of the 20th century was that unlike the end of World War I and prior wars, the, the victors did not impose too onerous a burden upon the losers. I mean, beyond having had their countries utterly destroyed <laughs> right. and everyone All living the in the bombing. rubble. But it, it would be nice to think that was learning from the mistakes of World War One. But it, realistically, it might you know it might just be more the real politic of uh, uh, we need to make nice with our former enemies because there's a bigger enemy now, either the Soviets or for the Soviets, the us. Right, and both things can be true. Right, there was idealism active in in the West at the time, and in in the U.S. State Department, and in the universities. The idea that after World War One, we saw what happens when you. Uh, impose humiliate a former yeah, humiliate an enemy. enemy, but also you're absolutely right. World War II ended and the Cold War began the same day, the same day, <laughs> and so the denazification. And they, they don't show that, by the way, in Times Square when the, the, the sailor's kissing the nurse and then immediately somebody's like, extra, extra, break it up, Cold War begins. And the nurse is like, oh man, but we were going to oh. make out for a day. Yeah, she gets home to her apartment and there are three other people living there. <laughs> Uh, the denazification and in, in a way the the dissolution of imperial Japan, you know, all, all and the and the defascistization of yeah, that's right. Italy. <laughs> um, those processes 
were were kind of skin deep. I mean, they did. There was a long period where where real bad Nazis were brought to trial, but a lot of the sort of mid level, just regular old SS and Nazi functionaries. It's a logistical problem. There's just too many of them, yeah, right? That's right. And you, they, you'd cripple the country. Uh, you'd get rid of anybody who knew how to do anything. They spent a little bit of time in a re education camp and then they went back home and within hours. Uh, were, <laughs> you know, not just back to work, but uh, back to work in local government. Um, a man by the name of Hans Martin Schleyer was, uh, or Schleyer. I love Schleyer. Was, uh, he, they're, they're one of the best speed metal bands. I like Striper and I like Schleyer. <laughs> Schleyer. Uh, he got out of his re-education camp in 1948 and within... A few hours was, or not few hours, but with, within a few. He was, he, he's hoisting uh, beer steins <laughs> with his fellow Bavarian uh, provincial council folks. But within a, within a, a year's time, was a member of the Bremen City Council, you know, and began an illustrious political career. So by the 1960s, you saw in Western Europe, especially in Italy and in in Germany, um, a lot of. A lot of the mid-level people in politics, the mayors of towns, the the members of parliament, um, and the industrial leaders, all had uh, direct Nazi experience. You know, they were the generation that were that were Nazis. And does that mean you know if you were vi- voting for whatever the 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 right the conservative party was in Germany in 1960, then at, at least at a local level, a lot of those would be. At a national level, oh. um, there was just not the, and, and there there was not yet a German sort of uh, national reckoning. There was no sense that if a guy has a monocle, you shouldn't vote for him. A monocle and a tiny <laughs> little mustache and a fencing scar? No, those guys were in charge. Uh, no, it was the it was the younger guys with the fleshy faces and the and the kind of uh, dead eyes. I think that were uh, that were ascendant. But what you saw was a kind of conservatism in German politics that was also a product of being right in the center of the Cold War. You know, Germany was the was the bulwark against uh, a, an Eastern invasion. Germany was the centerpiece of NATO. Germany was occupied by American and British and French troops. Um, Brit- Germany was divided, mm-hmm. and Berlin was a divided city right in the heart of it. So the kind of conservatism that um, that former Nazis just naturally gravitated toward really filled a filled a role in geopolitics. They would have been dedicated anti-communists in 1939, and That's they're right. just going to do it again in 1959. That's right. Except dedicated anti-communism now divorced from uh, genocidal racism and like a um, like an insatiable desire for conquer mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, at least at least they've sublimated those things they've sublimated them and you know in Germany became a model liberal democracy but liberal in the sense of uh, voting <laughs> yeah right and 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 you know and and center right thinking yeah um, as a as a counter to Marxist uh, the mark the Soviet Marxism and Eastern you know the Eastern Bloc just across the river, which was left um, 
left political ideology, but of course also fascistic. A repressive regime as yeah. well. Yeah, and, um, and that was where this confusion, or, or I guess a longstanding confusion, of how, y- how uh, you can have a right-wing political structure that sees itself as working more in their interests than a political ideology that expressly speaks for workers. Except they're all poor and have one pair of overalls and are living in the shabbiest possible apartments and don't have a can opener. Right. And, and that, um, really fed into what became a a mid century commodity fetishization, which was to say that, um, that as a worker, your, your, an emblem of your freedom was this shiny toaster or this brand new car and commodities which were produced and sold in this increasingly f- fr- you know f- frenzy of manufacturing and selling in particular were tied to ideas of personal liberation and you know and cultural liberation Boy, are we still dealing with echoes of that today where you you know even your average american citizen far away from any geographically and temporally far away from any threat of, of the, of the reds still interprets our constitutional freedom as you can't make me wear a mask in a Walmart. Right. You can't shut down the Chuck E. Cheese. You can't uh, tell me that I can't drive a, a car that pollutes. Right. Like our understanding of our freedom is entirely linked to the symbols of consumerism. Right. And that, and that fetishizing of, of products and commodity was a, um, a very academic critique of Western capitalism as, as sort of posited as the, the opposite of, um, Marxist Leninism or, or cooperativism, any kind socialism of any kind. It's going to lead to that dreary totalitarianism you see a hundred miles east of here. Right. And, and so this was happening, this critique was, was fairly universal in the universities and it, and it, a version of it came to be called, uh, um, it came to be called, it came to be known as situationism. Um, and situationists were in a way, of. almost a caricature of a kind of leftist academic because they also brought into this economic critique a kind of influence of surrealism, a sense of... They're, they're postmodernists? They're, and- they're the classic postmodernists who are saying it's not just a question of the rights of the workers, but it's more of a theoretical framework of how we live and think how the soul best manifests. It's, there's an aesthetic. That's right. It's about a vibe. My revolution is a vibe. And so all of this is the it was within the student movements of the 1960s. A sense that the Nazi, the re-Nazification of the German and Middle Europe kind of political world meant that that fascism. Uh, had not been rooted out, and it meant that government was incapable of being reformed from within. You couldn't just vote in leftist candidates because all the power structures remained and had been reinforced, renamed, recolored, um, so that really 
fascism was the form of government. Yeah, if, if you feel Germany. if you feel that consumerism is tainted, you feel like the whole basis of the economy is tainted. Right. And what do you do then? Like, there's really no. What can you do within that economy? You know, nothing. Like your your only recourse is going to be to some kind of external revolt. And this is happening in an era in, in the mid '60s, in particular, not yet quite the era where protests had become mainstream. Oh, we'd, interesting. We'd seen in the 50s a lot of resistance in the United States uh, on the part of civil rights, uh, you know, marchers and the civil rights movement, the civil rights battles in the South. And to this day, we associate that with struggle on the left, with a certain kind of, a certain blueprint of protest. And it was a blueprint for the global left mm-hmm. to to see this kind of active resistance and and uh, and it came it you know Martin Luther King was directly influenced by Gandhi it strikes and marches and, and it's, it's all Gandhi's playbook sit downs um so that became a kind of uh, an idea i guess within the left that he, that there was a way to shut it down and maybe you couldn't fight it from inside but you could shut it down stop and the gears only a few steps from that from shutting it down to actively destroying it the mid-60s are also... If you shut it down, it can start up again. If you blow it up, that's right. maybe it can't. You can rebuild a different thing. This was also a time, the mid-60s was, uh, and we've talked about it on the Omnibus before, after the advent of the birth control pill, you had sexual liberation sweeping the world. Sex was no longer tied to um, just procreation within marriage. You had all of the... All of the... The, the third world struggles in, at, the, at the end of colonialization where, you, where it was apparent that revolutionary movements, democratic movements were not thriving. And it was, it was clear that it was because of CIA and KGB intervention. It's not in the West's interest to have those movements thrive in these places. Right. And so there's all this arms trading, all these coup d'etat, um, you know, guerrillas – kind of resisting the democratically chosen government, uh, heads of state mysteriously dying or being abducted. Uh, and all of that's, you know, in the newspapers, it's not, it's not, people are not failing to notice. Yeah, this is it. not the secret history of the 20th century. It's also the rise of the baby boomer youth identity. Um, also women's liberation is happening. There's now a decade of anti-racist, racist, uh, action kind of globally. The Soviet union, by the way, uh, was describing itself as the antidote to all these Western problems throughout. And, it and does w- the left buy it in, uh, in Europe and elsewhere? It's very hard to be um, enamored by Marxism as a theory and not have to wrestle with, with nations that are describing themselves as Marxist in practice. And a lot of what happened was when the Soviet Union – um, started to fall out of favor in the academic left. Well, Stalin, you had you had Maoism, you had a you had a Chinese model that had also divorced itself from the Soviets and became you know the the teachings of Mao. We didn't yet in the West know about uh, the millions of dead in the um, you know in the famines mm. and in the uh, backyard smelters of the Maoist regime. So there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of 
model Marxist models that would enable you to kind of do that that uh, in, in a way. Um, you still do it today, yeah. Kind you, of you still you still kind of are trying to thread the needle where well, if, you know, if, if you know if you believe that uh, there are progressive or social democratic innovations that will work in your country you still say, well, there's a way to do that yeah. without falling into their trap. Well, and we've all, we, we've heard it our whole lives, right? That, well, this, the Soviet Union wasn't really Marxist. It was fascist. And we, right. there's never been a Marxist nation. And well, it's, it's funny because the right will do the same thing. The national socialists were right. not really fascists. Right. right. Hitler was a left winger. And that, that, uh, I think, you know, that sort of self lobotomizing where you're able to see a, see the potential of a theory and, ignore having to wrestle yeah, with not this time all the difficulty in, in implementing it but you also have all the liberation theologies of of um the you know of the globe right you have you have all these different peoples particularly ones living in in nations that had borders imposed by Balfour um dis, you know realizing that oh wait we're the Kurds we're not we're not half Iraqi, half Turkish. Um, and then you also have the bugbear of the world, Israel, right in the center of the Middle East, galvanizing a kind of Arab identity movement and very problematically um, being at the heart of uh, centuries of antisemitism, now, now having you know, forged a nation in a, in the cauldron of that, a nation which immediately is posited as a kind of fascist colonial power within the, within the Muslim world. They hardly got to enjoy any time of not being the persecuted underdog. There was zero time, right? Before Israel was even founded, the Jews of the emigrating to the Middle East were already colonial usurpers, mm -hmm. usurpers. Uh, so, and that, that, uh, Dynamic: the Palestinian fight against the Israelis became a leftist cause celeb uh, because a lot of American Jews that were funding Israel and the and the American sort of CIA project to have Israel as a bulwark against because a lot of the a lot of the Arab states were funded by the Soviets. It became a Cold War hotspot. But still, if I was a German kid, I would stay away from that one. Oh, if, sure. If I was a German college student looking for a part of the world, you know, like pick Cambodia or something, my friend. Like, I know. You know, like maybe Israel's one you want to just stay away from. from. I, I get it, but, you know. Unfortunately, that's not how it went down. That is down. not how it went down. And, well, and I assume there's, and I assume we can talk about, there might be some lingering anti-Semitism on both sides there, right? I mean... Anti-Semitism is not solely a problem of the right during this time. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism is the thing that brings people together. <laughs> it doesn't. It should. <laughs> it could. Anti-anti-Semitism uh, Semitism could bring people together, mm. but it tends to be it tends to work the other way. Yeah. Hey, futurelings! I'm here to tell you about HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I use HelloFresh myself, and let me attest to its quality and ease. HelloFresh offers convenient, no-contact delivery to your doorstep in these trying times for easy home cooking with the family. HelloFresh isn't just delicious and nutritious. It's also 
inexpensive relative to buying the same ingredients at the grocery store. You can save 40% using HelloFresh versus shopping. And also, over 90% of the ingredients are sourced directly from growers. That's right. Also, HelloFresh is the first global carbon-neutral meal kit company. Furthermore, HelloFresh is committed to donating to those in need. So far in 2020, they have donated three and a half million meals. I can say without reservation that HelloFresh has made a huge difference in my quarantine life. Our family cooks three meals a week from HelloFresh. So go to HelloFresh.com slash Omnibus90. That's HelloFresh.com slash Omnibus90 and use code Omnibus90 to get a total of $90 off, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Omnibus90 and enter the code Omnibus90. What happened is, uh, by 1968, uh, this all came to a head in, in protests that happened globally, right? 1968 was when Paris, when the students of Paris rose up. Um, it was when um, the the people of Czechoslovakia rebelled. So there's also anti-communism. Anti-communism. In, in, the, pro- in it, the liberal liberation theology of the year. It really felt like, and, and it, you know, uh, it, it protests against Vietnam and the fact that a lot of these NATO nations were uh, tacit supporters of the Vietnam War, if not active ones. The West German government contributed a lot to that conflict and to you know, they were sending arms globally, uh, as part of the, you know, as their side of the cold war, the recognition that all of the, that the student populations. And at that point in time, the baby boom was at its crest, uh, the majority of those, that generation, an enormous generation were all in their late teens and early twenties and very activated by, um, this, the, Academic Marxism, but also a, a brand new environmental movement um, and a recognition that global war wasn't necessarily the the best, you know, anti-nuclear protest. Yeah, I guess, I guess the shadow of just your death every day from uh, the threat of nuclear arms has got to be a big part of that. But also a sense within this situationist mentality that there was – that the antidote to – commodity fetishization and global capitalism was not um was not something that you needed to undertake as a uh, from the point of a nation state but that you could start to live communally this was an era when people were tuning in and dropping out and living together in squats refusing to pay rent moving out to the countryside um and a, Unfortunately, then as now, a lot of the most vocal people in these movements were middle to upper middle class educated whites, right? A, a lot of a lot of workers. You got to be able to afford the college tuition to get to get your <laughs> to learn about situationism. Yeah, and and you're. I mean, there is an intrinsic privilege in being able to sit within systems of power and resist them, right? Because if you're Talking about you, you know, uh, unionizing the hotel workers in the United States and giving them a voice, 
um, that's a ton of work. But if, you know, if you're the son of a, of a state senator and can sit in, you know, sit, uh, oh, crisscross all, applesauce. All these lefty kids are <laughs> lazy dilettantes, John. I get it. <laughs> but it's, but as we'll see the, a lot of the leftist movements in Europe at the time and in the United States were spearheaded by these people. And I think they've got the free time for it. Can, and now we recognize that, uh, and it's, and it's a, a fairly, uh, a fairly recent, um, widespread critique. It's always been a critique. Um, in particular in the, in the feminist movement, there was an early understanding that the, the, the feminist movement means something very different to white middle-class women than it does to women of color and working class women. Mm -hmm. And you often find that those two groups are, uh, do not have a common cause when looking for political representation. And we see that now that critique is often made like, please white middle-class people do not try to speak for black lives matter. For instance, um, we need to foreground the voices of people that are, that are actually affected by this. The, the assumption being not just that it's a bad look, but that they understand the issues better. They understand the issues better, but also it's a form of just sort of, you know, uh, everlasting colonialism. If the, if the yeah. speakers are always white in the sixties, that was not yet common understanding. And in 1968, this, the, the potential of this global, uprising and it, you you see it in the american story too all of the berkeley protests the sdes and the, the, right students for a democratic society the weathermen um all of those protests were part of this global uprising and it really felt like a moment where anything was possible and what ended up happening was a universal police crackdown this was the democratic convention the chicago cops this was the um, cops in Paris and in Germany, especially the the neo fascists that were running the country, really brought the police crackdown hard on students. And um, in particular, there was a protest in 1968 uh, when the Shah of Iran visited. West West Germany. He was living in exile wherever they exiled him. Uh, in '68, he was still, oh, the, he Shah was still the Shah of Iran. Oh, and uh, I guess this would have been this would have been in July of '67. Um, the Shah was visiting, and the the leftist students of Germany were protesting his his visit. And uh, a policeman killed a protester by the name of Benno Onsorg. Yeah, Onsorg. Benno Onisorg. Benno, huh? Benno. Uh, shot him. A cop shot him in the head. And it turned out the cop actually had uh, had a Nazi past, but also in the in the at the end of it was working for the Stasi, who were the East German secret police. Oh. Well, um, I mean, today you would today you would not be surprised by the twist of the police having white supremacist ties, but working for the Stasi is we don't get that anymore. Well, right, and and I, that didn't come out immediately, and it's not clear whether the Stasi were They're trying to destabilize trying to the... destabilize it. But it 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 uh, it began a series of sort of student rebellions, and all of this is happening within an environment where the German or the West German press is really really dominated by um, 
by kind of a Rupert Murdoch figure that owns uh, the vast majority of Western media, uh, German media. West His German name, media. West German media. His name was Axel Springer, and Springer became a um, became basically a, a the the watchword of a conservative and repressive media. So for, he's the villain for for these youth movements. Yeah, and and making it impossible for um, for the true story to get out. In 1972, a student by the name of Andreas Bader and a, and a couple of friends firebombed a couple of department stores. And this was a kind of, you know, I guess what you would think of maybe as a typical student situationist understanding of what an effective protest would be against police brutality and and widespread fascism just because the free market is is uh yeah it, you, you see it during the wto protests and during a lot of the black lives matter protests that the that the anger gets taken out on the nike store or the commercial enterprise because that because they are the 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 public face they of, have a, yeah they have a street facing presence yeah and they are commodity uh, fetishization at, at its at its face mm-hmm. right that's where you buy the shiny toaster oh yeah I'm in favor of it yeah I'll blow up an oh, Apple yeah, store blow them up I mean that's what and while you're blowing it up loot it <laughs> uh, but but Botter burned down a couple of Kaufhaus department stores in in reaction to um, to all these events and you know, kind of set about, um, set, set himself up as, as a student, part of a student rebellion. And there were student rebel groups springing up throughout Italy and Germany and kind of throughout the West. I mentioned the weathermen in the United States. There were, uh, groups called the revolutionary cells. There were the red brigades in Italy. If you were a person of that generation, you would have friends just on the run from the cops. That's right. Uh, there was the two June movement, it was part of being a young college student for for a lot of people. It really was. That's what I learned in those Elena Ferrante books is yeah. that, you know, everybody had that one friend who just dropped out of sight and then the cops started asking you where you'd seen them last. Yeah, if you went into any leftist bookstore, it you could presume that the person in um John Lennon glasses behind the counter was also uh at, in the evenings plotting to burn down a, a grocery store. Uh and they were all linked, but also they had they had shared goals and shared ideologies up to a certain point but but some of them were anarchistic some of them were um were openly marxist leninist i mean there was a lot of of uh there was a lot of kind of dispute about what the actual end goal was in overturning uh, the fascist global state but the short term goals were shared and um Unfortunately, Botter, rather, unfortunately for Botter, unfortunately, Botter and his crew were arrested and uh, put in jail and then were released. And the, the uh, I'm sorry, no, initially escaped from jail Ooh. and escaped from jail with the help of a young journalist by the name of Ulrika Meinhof. And she was. Um, oh, I didn't realize Botter Meinhof was also uh, maybe a relationship and not just the organization. Well, 
it's hard Do to sparks fly. It's hard to say how how much their popularity or how much how much the how much this movement was was maybe partially glamorized because they were beautiful people. Uh, that's funny. And a lot of these young students, and you see this in the SDS, you see this in a lot of student movements. You know, they're they're gorgeous and they're in their early twenties and they feel very passionately about the. Uh, about the cause, and so when you see them represented in the media, they're just they're just tailor made to be uh, celebrities, and they were they were conscious of this, and and their whole cadre uh, were all young, educated, and 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 pretty. Uh, they went on the lamb. They started robbing banks, um, and. Then eventually, were um, were arrested. the The challenge for the West German state was that because of their celebrity, but also because of I think a recognition that a lot of their critiques of German society were were accurate or at least compelling. Uh, there was a lot of sympathy for these leftist revolutionary movements in the general population. Yeah, people love an outlaw, right? Yeah, that's right. And and the and the um the connection with Bonnie and Clyde was explicit. Oh. The Bonnie and Clyde movie had been a huge success um during this same time period. 67, I think. And Bader and Meinhof actually spoke of themselves as the Bonnie and Clyde of um of Germany at the time. And you know, it the it's a it's a strained connection because Bonnie and Clyde were not trying to bring about a they weren't no, trying to overturn the capitalist well, system. The whole Bonnie and Clyde fascination is weird because there's really nothing that Robin Hood like about them. No. It's just that if you're very poor, you like to see rich people blow up. Yeah, they're pretty they're pretty terrible, but you know, Bonnie uh was looked good in those uh, those flower dresses, I guess. Beret. Um so over a quarter of the West German population expressed sympathy for the aims of Bader and Meinhof. And what they were up against was the public prosecutors, the judges, um, the entire legal system. When you met those people and read their biographies, you realized they were all Nazis. Every one of them had some terrible backstory. It's very tricky for the movie of this. They have to, they're going to have to, you know, if you want to have a a crusading prosecutor. You're gonna have to leave something out, and and so the 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 right was not only unsympathetic because they were um, because they were old and square, old and square, and 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 running guns and part of an anti liberation global uh, cabal, but they were also actually Nazis. <laughs> They have to be the villain in the movie by law. And so they did what you would expect, which was actually pass laws against protesting, pass laws against um, against these people specifically. During the trials, they would exclude the media. Oh, that's interesting. They would uh, – they the trials were really stacked against them. When the, when the Bader-Meinhof gang was sent to prison at Stromheim, they actually built a new section of the prison just to hold them. Where each one of them was kept in complete isolation. They didn't. They were afraid a movement would grow the behind pr- bars. The problem with the with what happened to the movement was that as as they um, as they got imprisoned, 
they kind of because Bader the Bader Meinhof gang actually went to Palestine and Libya and trained with the PLO, and this was that time when the IRA. ETA in northern Spain. That have shared camps, right? Yeah, the PLO. These these groups all saw that they were part of a larger movement, a liberation movement. And so they, they trained and they used uh, similar tactics, but they also, uh, they also kind of shared one another's goals, right? If you were, if you were in the Bader-Meinhof gang, you also wanted Ireland for the Irish. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you mentioned, like problematically, um, were against. You had, a, it, you had a problem with Jews. You had a problem <laughs> with Jews. Whether right. you know whatever your justifications <laughs> were, uh, that does seem like it's not a super complicated view of the world. You know, I guess I would say if they if they're immediately seeing, I mean, one thing about immediately seeing your side of all these very diverse struggles is that you probably don't understand the subtleties of the struggle very well. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a tendency to see, to see a villain everywhere. Right. And, and also a tendency to maybe overestimate the degree to which the silent majority will take up your banner once a certain threshold is crossed. And you see this with the Boogaloo movement now, or the, you know, the far right imagines that all they have to do is spark this race war or spark this uprising and it will galvanize all these moms and dads who are just sitting around watching, uh, watching television. They're all going to stand up and say, yeah, we support your, your plan to have a white state in Idaho, Montana and Nevada. You know, we support the idea. We've just been too shy to say so. And it's also true of the of the of the left in that this rebellion, this idea that there's a nascent desire for revolution, and what needs to happen is just a line, a line of, um, and I think right now on the left at least it's the same as it was in in seventy two, which is that this the the fascism will become so overbearing mm-hmm. that it inspires a revolutionary uh, instinct, I guess, in the populace. I mean, the right was correct that there was this unsuspected silent majority for a political revolution, at least. You know, no one thought the Tea Party was the seeds of an actual presidential run. Right. Um, and I guess that could be, I think that has the potential to be true on the left as well, when you see how well, you know, certain kinds of, New Deal kind of progressivism ideas are polling in healthcare and social justice, income inequality. I mean, you can probably put a political revolution on the back of that stuff, but I don't think anybody's going to want to see fighting um, in the streets, chairs going through windows. And uh, the the crucial difference is that the right wing ideologies in the United States right now do not really have an economic component yeah. beyond just let things be the way they are. Um, in that sense, they are very reactionary against change. Most of the most of the appeal to the voters in 2016 that brought Trump to office were, as as you mentioned before, uh, reactionary against laws that they perceived to be imposing on their natural right to not make birthday cakes for gay people or uh, disinclude people from their clubs. Or it, ultimately, I think uh, it's all a reaction to affirmative action. 
you know, the, the feeling that the Just state... Just a sense deep down, maybe, that your color of skin is getting replaced. Is that is that the basis of all of it in America? The demographic sense that, uh, you know, somebody's sensing their own extinction? Or, or feeling that what used to be fair... Yeah. Which they... In other words, easy for me. Yeah, which they didn't see... They, they had no exposure to the unfairness. Yeah. What used to be fair is now becoming unfair. It's stacked against me. And that... It, you know, that's a basic need. And the problem with the leftist arguments is that they're always more sophisticated. You know, though all the things that you just described, and, and particularly the hard left, to overturn the structures of global capitalism either required a lot of legislation, regulation, enforcement, reordering of how money is exchanged, how, you know, interest rates, all this stuff that nobody wants to think about. Yeah, it seems like a real slog, John. I'm kind of backing <laughs> off it now that you mention it. Or this this dream of a revolution and the creation of a state with with equity, both, you know, and it, a lot of the times they're described as true democracies, uh, one person, one vote democracies, imagining that people will vote their best interests, which we've seen even in our contemporary world, people don't vote there. It doesn't happen. <laughs> they don't. And, and the thing is that leftist ideology requires education and is predicated on the idea that education will enlighten and uplift the masses. Um, and that also— and We're not living in a golden age of education. —doesn't really seem like it's panning out. Uh, what happened to the Bader-Meinhof gang was that as more and more were arrested, the next generation uh, started to mount— bank robberies and embassy takeovers and hijackings, but their demands were often that the first generation of Bader-Meinhof uh, guys be released from prison. And they, the, the goals of the organization are currently to get the roles of the organization back in order. That's right. And you can't get to global revolution if you're just trying to get if you're just trying to get the old guys out of jail. And so, so that toward the late seventies, they started to fall out of favor. Um, they started to lose their sympathy within the, the European left, Mm -hmm. uh, mainstream left, because their demands were no longer, uh, these sort of universally, uh, agreed upon changes to the structure of the world and we're much more like we we've hijacked this guy and we will kill him if you don't release Andreas Bader from prison. It's all organizational infighting stuff. And you, and you know you you saw it in in Munich in 72, you see it in in Tebby. Yeah. Um you see it in uh, the Bader-Meinhof gang hijacked a plane to Mogadishu. Yeah, and the stereotypical version of these all they want is to get one of their own guys out of prison. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not. It's a stereotype for a reason. It actually kind of started to pan out that way. And the bank robberies were just to get money to survive, you know, because they're all they're all living underground and they need um, they just need money, uh, which is less less sympathetic. (laughs) Oh, you guys need money now, do you? And what happened politically in Germany is that the right, um, and I think in Italy and, and across Europe, the right did succeed in imposing more restrictions, police state restrictions. But the long-term consequence was, and we talk about this in the United States all the time, that that more and more leftist ideas got integrated into the green platform, into 
um, into the left mainstream parties in Germany. So that by the 80s, uh, and then especially into the 90s and now even, although the, the, these ruling parties are still very much um, center and mm-hmm. center right, uh, socialized medicine is a is seen as a uh, as a Even, common right. Right, European right parties don't want to touch socialized medicine. And there's a lot of socialistic principles that got um, that became mainstreamed within European governments that were a product of this period where that sympathy did ultimately, and a lot of the, a lot of the leftist radicals as they matured became mainstream left politicians that really did move the needle left. Now that, that didn't really happen here. It didn't happen here. And, and a large part of it was the Reagan revolution and that, and the, even in the UK where you had a Thatcher revolution because of a parliamentary system, you still had an active enough left mm. that they needed that when, when um, the labor party got into power, they needed to make common cause and adopt policies from a harder left. But Reagan and Thatcher both pulled their respective uh, opponent parties, opposition parties, to the right, right. right with them. You get Clinton and Blair as a result of right. that. Well, right. Well, right. But in the United States, a lot of that, um, and even the social uh, and social justice stuff in the U.S. got pulled right by economics. The appeal to commodity fetishism. The question, are you better off now than mm-hmm. you were 10 years ago? We're going to make America great again. We're going to bring the pride back. And all of that was... It just means a nicer car. It means nicer stuff, right? And and watching the labor movement in the United States get discredited partly by the decline of manu- our manufacturing power mm-hmm. and Reagan's ability to tie... Um, to tie the fact that our cars were no good anymore to labor and to organize, you know, and, and his busting of the, uh, the air traffic controllers. You got to keep the new industries that are forming to replace manufacturing, keep them from unionizing and you never get a real voting block there. That's right. And so the, the left and then the discrediting of the word liberal and connecting that to, you know, to racist dog whistling Mm -hmm. Uh, the welfare state, the, um, you know, all this, this black underclass that doesn't want to, doesn't want to work, you know, that whole. But I assume one reason you can do that is because people remember these guys with long hair and, uh, and fringe on their jackets blowing stuff up, right? I mean, there's, if you've got memory of that on both sides of the Atlantic, it lets people say, oh, you know, liberal is, li- being liberal is unpatriotic. Right. And uh, in the United States, of course, we have... Uh, we have a lot more diversity uh, racially mm. than uh, the Euro- European nations, uh, at least until recently. And so that diversity also plays into those arguments. It gives because, you a bad guy. Yeah, to... it's not just the leftist. We can connect that to the Watts riots. We can connect that to the Rodney King riots yeah. uh, because all of it is— It's a fear that someone is coming for your stuff in violent right. ways. Which is you know, what we have now. Uh, the Bader-Meinhof gang dissolved largely after the after the fall of the Berlin Wall. There wasn't any. Uh, they they were, I think, in the throughout the eighties, kind of supported by the Stasi and by 
uh, the East German governments, even as East Germany fell apart, they were still trying to... For a very low investment, they can sow a lot of instability in the West, right? right. But that whole that whole sort of geopolitical game all fell apart, yeah. and the Bader-Meinhof uh, dissolved and disavowed, you know, the, the remaining members kind of disavowed violent action. Have they become, have any of them become, I guess, have any of them become politicians in the same way these former IRA guys are now elder statesmen? Some of the, some of the sympathetic uh, students of the early 70s did go on to become mainstream politicians still active today. But a lot of the, the members of the second and then third generation of Bader Meinhof are, are accused of murder. Yeah. Um, what happened to Andreas Bader, um, Unfortunately, Ulrike Meinhof um, hung herself in prison in 1976 in a hanging that, you know, where she had tied um, the sheets of her bedding together and hung herself in her cell. There was the problem being that that um, finding of suicide was made by the police Mm -hmm. in the prison, supported by prosecutors who were all ex-Nazis. And there was no kind of independent investigation into her suicide. Uh, the 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 prison imprisoned Bader Meinhof people of that first generation uh, did hunger striking. They 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 found all manner of um, sort of method to communicate with each other through their lawyers and to remain in the public eye. But uh, in October of seventy seven. Three of the main, uh, the the main remaining members of imprisoned Bader Meinhof gangsters, gangsters. What am I saying? Members members. of the gang, gang members, including Andreas Bader, uh, committed suicide, having smuggled pistols into the jail through their lawyer. They shot themselves in jail. Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't seem like, I mean, that to me, that seems more suspicious. I guess the, the lawyer can say, nope, I gave him the pistols. E, sort of. It, it seems more suspicious than the hanging. Pretty suspicious that if you were in solitary confinement where you had no access to anyone, that you would have them smuggle in a pistol. If I got a gun in jail, I'm not sure if that's right? what I would do with it. Wouldn't you... Try and take a couple of cops out with you. I mean, to just get a pistol to kill yourself. It's not very Bader, Bader Meinhof-y. It's really not. And to this day, um, there's a lot of suspicion that uh, that those were extrajudicial killings, and um, and that really put a. I mean, what that did was end hijackings and and uh, kidnappings in order to get them released from prison because they were all dead now. So the. Once the first generation was gone, the second and third generation no longer had that same sort of um, link to the original righteous um, organization. So they disappeared for a long time. But in 2016, what? there was a failed armored car robbery outside of Bremen where um, a Ford Focus – rolled up on a armored car that was dropping or, you know, making deposits or taking deposits from a local supermarket, blocked in the, uh, the armored car and three people made an assault on it, um, where they failed 
to blow open the armored car, failed to get what would have been over a million euros inside, Whoa. and uh, and made their escape, but left behind DNA traces, revealing them to be Ernst Staub and Daniela Klette and Burkhard Garwig, three Bader-Meinhof third-generation uh, gang members from the late 70s. Are they in like walkers with tennis balls on the feet? I mean, they, they would have to be in at least in their, what, late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, they were They were 58 years old at the time. They're in their early 60s now. Um, <laughs> so they're, you know, they're only 10 years older than I am. Uh, but in 19, that means in 1976, they were already, you know, active in the... Does that make you feel youthful? Okay. People your age are out there blowing up armored cars? A little bit that, older than me. That gives, that, but that gives you something to look forward to. You know, your life's not over, John. There could be uh, there could be lots more revolutionary acts in your future. Well, when I look at the current left and the current state of, you know, of our fascistic national government, and I try and apply these past lessons and this history to the success of violent action, for one, which seems to be somewhat limited, but the success of the ideological action. And and you see the kind of unfortunate story that that ideological action only got integrated in this sort of backdoor method where some members of parliament have those sympathies. You really want to do it better this time. And um, I mean, that's not to say that I don't have Tons of plastique here in our bunker. I mean, one thing, this is a, maybe this is a side note, but you know, you do have young energized people getting directly into politics today in their twenties, which I don't know if I remember happening on either side of the Atlantic in the late sixties into the seventies. It did happen. But, but as you've mentioned, we're in a two party system here. And so you, um, your only real power other than the power of the pulpit is if you can get a majority. And the difference in a parliament is that you, if you get a faction, yeah. you can then you know, draw the mainstream to the left. In the United States, the threat of the youth vote being denied to Biden, for instance, is, um, I mean, it is a threat that's being ventured. I mean, because people, I think, see that that cost... Clinton, the presidency it, it in 2016. Did, it did, but does anybody, I don't know where, I don't know how, where your ideology would have to be, where you would prefer Trump if you were a leftist, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, you could say all day, I mean, I'm, and I'm speaking as a Nader voter, two-time Nader voter. It's uh, always under your name. Uh, that's the Chiron under your face when you're on TV. Yeah. Nader voter. John Roderick, two-time, two-time Nader, time Nader voter. voter. It's actually on my business card. <laughs> and that concludes... The Bader-Meinhof Gang, entry 088.EZ2736, certificate number 26524, in the Omnibus. Listeners, even though John and I are critics of late-stage capitalism in all its forms, and consumerism in all its forms, we still do this outro every entry about how you should send us material things, and if possible, support us economically. We're hypocrites, is what I'm saying. You know, the thing is that having people support us directly oh, yeah. with their contributions. This is the Paris Commune right here. That's right. It's not at all part of a uh, of a capitalist superstructure. This is this Sup- is support this little private uh, economy we have. Support the omnibus cell of the global revolution. This is your opportunity to be a petit Medici 
uh, and support us with the, you know, let us do our statuary and our and our ceiling painting. Don't be a normal sized Medici. Just be a, li- a little tiny one, a like that th- th- someone can carry in his pocket. I mean, if you want to be a big Medici and give us like a stipend of of a million euros, we want we'll somebody on the right to pay us more than this not to do the show. <laughs> a million lira, and we will stop immediately. How much would it cost for us to? Stop doing the show and stop putting out our left leftist uh, claptrap. It would take our current Patreon uh, donor base plus one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are multiple ways you could support the show. You could follow us at Omnibus Project or at John Roderick or at Ken Jennings. Uh, you can leave favorable reviews of the show. Listen to John's other shows. Why not buy my books? Buy Ken's books and listen. Participate in the whole in the whole uh, uh, omnibus commune economy. Listen to my podcast, Friendly Fire, uh, on the Max Fun Network. About uh, we watch old war movies and and uh, talk about them. Full of leftist claptrap. Don't uh, don't do this at the cost of omnibus. But if you have extra time after you've listened to omnibus, John's got three other shows. Yeah, that's right, and they're all amazing. I mean, not as good as this one because they don't have Ken Jennings on them, but they're still amazing. You can page through my books while you listen to John's war movie podcast, or his talking about stuff podcast, or his other talking about stuff podcast. Heard that? Heard that. Uh, you can uh, chat with your fellow commune members, uh, the futurelings on facebook or reddit or discord you can uh email us with uh communiques about what your what your cell of the omnibus movement has been getting up to in your home prefecture at the omnibus project at gmail.com uh if you have things you would like to send us you know we would love to see your beautiful aesthetic i'm not really sure who this is but um Mary from Raleigh, North Carolina. There doesn't seem to be any explanatory note. Beyond. Oh, there is. There is. It just stuck to the envelope. Because there was a green piece of construction paper with glitter, and I was like, if I hold this up to the light, does this have a message? Oh. Um, I can't read the signature, but the return address says Mary, and uh, the letter says that they've been recently researching the distant past and has uncovered our uh, our document. That's great. They got back in time to us. Oh, they are robot cicadas, apparently. They're really doing the whole kayfabe thing. Uh-huh. And she has sent us uh, an heirloom from her aunt or great-aunt Opal, fabric she collected to Hawaii in the distant past, that she has turned into these beautiful pandemic-era masks oh for us. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Ken, those are beautiful. Look at that old Hawaiian oh, fabric. Oh, oh, and, and look how the back is uh, like oh. 70s uh, toilet paper cozy. Oh, and they're really big, Carino too. Space. They're like our size, or at least my size. Would you, you throw one you, over there? Do you have a big head? I do. I have a big face, and none of the masks seem to work. Here's one of each oh, color. These are lovely. Ken, these are wonderful. Oh, wow. These are so amazing. And they have a little metal piece to conform to your olfactory piroscus. Don't you like when the mask had the little bread tie at I the do. top? So I do. Can, I like it so you can much. Shape it over the bridge of your nose. I like it so much. And this one with the listen. I, this one with the Hawaiian stuff on it. Are you? Oh, they actually have a metal. Oh wow. This Hawaiian one. Are you going to wear this? This is a little boogaloo for you, isn't it? No, I'll wear one of these. Oh, okay, all right. You, you want both of them? Well, I, I, I see gonna, what you're trying to pull. I was going to try that, but you're going to tr- you're going to try to trade me for. I don't know. It's okay. For two of these. It's all right. These are amazing, and I'll wear each one of these three here. Thank you. We'd like to thank the Unified Conglomeration for the compilation of and Omni Omnibus. Mm-hmm. These lovely masks. Uh, the, they're called the Unified Corporation? 
conglomeration. Oh, that's that sounds like a pretty Marxist-Leninist group, right? It's the Situation Internationale. That's great. Well, you know, if, if an insect hive does take over the future, they are almost they're, they're going to be uh, some kind of communitarian society. Roger, right? Roger. Uh, we also got from Ian, uh, who says he donates at the sentient Aspen level in Buffalo. He offers us a tour of Buffalo. He talks about his past uh, in the sciences. Uh, he's a PhD. He's worked in cancer and infectious disease. Now he does green business. Uh, he starts a business salvaging building materials for reuse and still teaches physics and chemistry at a local community college. But his passion is illustration. He sent us these beautiful Prismacolor illustrations of past omnibus entries. And I don't know how you get colors this vivid out of Prismacolor pencil, because I have tried, and these are... I have never seen color this bold. Look at these, John. These are lovely. This one's about uh, backmasking... Uh, Here's one from the Pumpkin Pie Show. These are going you're all the way saying, back. You're saying, look at this, but you're pointing them at yourself. I'm selfishly trying to enjoy oh, them. Oh, look at those. Look at that color palette. Oh, I accidentally kept one in the package. Oh, furries. This is, nice. this is nice. The furries one has woodchucks on um, on old-timey bicycles and with uh, uh, produce in the basket. You see the, little, you see the little hands of the... And the little eyeballs of the futurelings taking yeah, e- a look. Here. Yeah, each one is like a, a, a relic that has been uncovered by some post-human Earthling. These are really beautiful. Oh, these are good. These are nice. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, I guess the bar is very high from these handicrafts we've been receiving, but we'll put posters, we put photos of these on our Patreon so you can enjoy them. If you would like to contribute to the show financially, uh, I mean, you know, you can free. You can free the past leaders of our movement. Mm-hmm. That's that's one goal we all have. Yep. You or don't you don't have to rob a bank or kidnap an industrialist. Free Lori Laughlin. Or you can support the show financially at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, you'll receive perks like free monthly bonus episode, up to and including chats with John and myself. We were just chatting with a futureling last week who was telling us about his sugar ant problem. And it turns out you and I both have sugar ant problems, so we commiserated with him about his sugar ants. Yeah, sugar ants are um, are a problem. But he was a fascinating uh, a futureling, and uh, very interested, very interesting to talk to about his time as a submariner and um, all of his all of his great adventures. A naval academy graduate. He had real naval adventures before becoming a tech guy. He did. Now, just another tech guy. What are you going to do? But it's good Ain't to have, the you, you got the stories. Yeah, that's right. Been around the world. But now you can actually, you Seen know, a million faces, rocked them all. But now you can afford a Tesla. That's right. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.